0: Welcome to the Underclass Podcast with Austin Picard. I'm an independent researcher who can't stomach being lied to on a daily basis by the mainstream media. While we live in a fracturing society launched into parallel realities, falling perfectly onto the two sides of the political spectrum, I remain in the Underclass. Today, we consider an alternate version of history. Where the inauthentic yet effective emotional appeals of the political actors tasked with doing the bidding of special interest groups who inherently obstruct the natural order of society no longer distract us from the strategic goals of an international council of elites formed with the aspirations of organizing politics, commerce, banking, media and the military for centralized global efforts. Before we introduce and trace back the conspiracy that takes on numerous forms, such as the most preeminent Committee of 300, or the Club of Rome, the Frankfurt School and the Tavistock Institute, the Trilateral Commission, or the East India Trading Company, the list goes on. But we first take a brief moment to provide a couple examples that best represent this deliberate degeneration and malignant self serving agenda. In what amounts to internal subversion, imposing soft power through implicit coercion. A quick modern example we could point to would be when Warren Buffett's business partner, Charlie Munger, told the Financial Times, I think the world of Larry Fink, but I'm not sure I want him to be my emperor. In reference to Fink's leading asset management company selling stock index funds to millions of investors with accumulated assets under management listed at $10 trillion. Only two countries have a higher GDP than BlackRock's accumulated assets under management, and that's China and the United States. Out of all the companies listed on the S&P 500 stock market index, tracking the performance of the 500 largest companies listed on the U.S. stock exchange, 88% of those companies' largest shareholder was either BlackRock State Street, or Vanguard. BlackRock has also conveniently taken it upon themselves to be a leading proponent of what is called Environmental Social Governance Investing, or ESG, which is clearly deceptive in its nature, as we can point to examples of companies like ExxonMobil receiving a top 10 rating for their Environmental Social Governance score. Which has been promoted as a strategy developed in order to measure companies' environmental impact in relation to the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, incorporating ethical considerations into investment decisions. However, there seems to be a vital disconnect between ESG and actual environmental impact, leading to many corporations engaging in the strategy of what's been called greenwashing, who improve public perception of their brands while simultaneously propping up another pay-to-play system, acting as an additional barrier to entry for smaller companies. The Harvard Business Review even suggested that companies concerned with ESG performance may actually be directing capital into poor business performers. That result might be expected, and it is possible that investors would be happy to sacrifice financial returns in exchange for better ESG performance. Unfortunately, ESG funds don't seem to deliver better ESG performance either. This all began to remind me of the prophetic warning issued by Yuri Bezmenov in 1984, where he laid out the four stages of ideological subversion, starting with demoralization, then destabilization, introducing a crisis, and finally, normalization. In 1984, author G. Edward Griffin interviewed a former KGB officer who had reportedly defected to Canada in 1970, introducing him as Yuri Alexander Besmanov, who was born in 1939 in a suburb of Moscow, the son of a high-ranking Soviet officer. He was educated in the elite schools inside the Soviet Union and became an expert in Indian culture and Indian languages. He had an outstanding career with Navesti, which was the press arm and the press agency of the Soviet Union. It turns out that this is also a front for the KGB. He escaped to the West in 1970 after becoming totally disgusted with the Soviet system, and he did this at great risk to his life. He certainly is one of the world's outstanding experts on the subject of Soviet propaganda and disinformation and active measures. The first question posed to Mr. Besmanov was to explain the phrase ideological subversion. He responds by saying, What it basically means is to change the perception of reality of every American to such an extent that despite an abundance of information, no one is able to come to sensible conclusions in the interest of defending themselves, their family, their community, and their country. It's a great brainwashing process, which goes very slow and is divided into four stages. The first one being demoralization. It takes from 15 to 20 years to demoralize a nation. Why that many years? Because this is the minimum number of years required to educate a generation of students in the country of your enemy. Exposed to the ideology of the enemy. In other words, Marxism-Leninism ideology is being pumped into the soft heads of at least three generations of American students without being challenged or contrabalanced by the basic values of Americanism, American patriotism. The highest art of warfare is not to fight at all, but to subvert anything of value in the country of your enemy until such time that the perception of reality is screwed up to such an extent that he does not perceive you as an enemy. You can take your enemy without a single shot being fired. Your leftists in the United States, they serve purpose only at the stage of destabilization of a nation. For example, all these professors and all these beautiful civil rights defenders, they are instrumental in the process of the subversion only to destabilize a nation. When their job is completed, they are not needed anymore they know too much. Some of them, when they get disillusioned, when they see the Marxist-Leninist has come to power, obviously they get offended. They think that they will come to power. That will never happen, of course. They will be lined up against the wall and shot. But they may turn into the most bitter enemies of Marxist-Leninists when they come to power, and that's what happened in Nicaragua. You remember most of these former Leninist Marxists were either put to prison or one of them split and now he's working against Sandinistas. It happened in Granada when Maurice Bishop, he was already a Marxist, he was executed by a new Marxist, who was more Marxist than this Marxist. Same happened in Afghanistan. When first there was Tariqi, he was killed by Amin, and Amin was killed by Carmel with the help of KGB. Same happened in Bangladesh when Mujibur Rahman, very pro-Soviet leftist, was assassinated by his own Marxist-Leninist military comrades. It's the same pattern everywhere. The moment they serve their purpose, all the useful idiots are either executed entirely, all the idealistically-minded Marxists, or exiled or put in prisons, like in Cuba, where many former Marxists are in prison. So basically, America is stuck with the demoralization, unless even if you start right now, here this minute, you start educating huge generation of Americans, it will still take you 15 to 20 years to turn the tide of ideological perception of reality back to normalcy and patriotism. The result? The result you can see. Most of the people who were educated in the 60s, dropouts or half-baked intellectuals, are now occupying the positions of power in the government, civil service, business, mass media, educational system. You are stuck with them. You cannot get rid of them. They are contaminated. They are programmed to think and react to certain stimuli in a certain pattern. You cannot change their mind, even if you expose them to authentic information. Even if you prove that white is white and black is black, you still cannot change the basic perception and illogical behavior. In other words, these people, the process of demoralization is complete and irreversible. To get society rid of these people, you need another 20 or 15 years to educate a new generation of patriotically minded and common sense people who would be acting in favor and in the interests of the United States society. The interviewer G. Edward Griffin asks, And yet these people who have been programmed, these are the very people who would be marked for extermination in this country? Basmanov responds by saying, Most of them, yes, simply because the psychological shock when they will see in the future what the beautiful society of equality and social justice means in practice. Obviously, they will revolt. They will be very unhappy, frustrated people, and the Marxist-Leninist regime does not tolerate these people. Obviously, they will join the likes of dissenters and dissidents. Unlike in the present United States, there will be no place for dissent in future Marxist-Leninist America. Here you can get popular like Daniel Ellsberg and filthy rich like Jane Fonda for being a dissident, for criticizing your Pentagon. In the future, these people will be simply squashed like cockroaches. Nobody's going to pay them anything for their beautiful, noble ideas about equality. This they don't understand, and it will be the greatest shock for them, of course. The demoralization process in the United States is basically completed already. For the last 25 years, actually it's overfulfilled because the demoralization now reaches such areas where previously Not even Comrade Andropov and all his experts would even dream of such a tremendous success. Most of it is done by Americans to Americans, thanks to lack of moral standards. As I mentioned before, exposure to true information does not matter anymore. A person who is demoralized is unable to assess true information. The facts tell nothing to him. Even if I shower him with information, with authentic proof, with documents, with pictures. Even if I take him by force to the Soviet Union and show him concentration camp, he will refuse to believe it until he is going to receive a kick in his fat bottom. When the military boot crushes his balls, then he will understand. But not before that. That's the tragic situation of demoralization. The next stage is destabilization. Subverter does not care about your ideas and the patterns of your consumption. Whether you eat junk food and get fat and flabby doesn't matter anymore. This time, it takes only two to five years to destabilize a nation. What matters are essentials. Economy, foreign relations, defense systems. And you can see it quite clearly that in some areas, in such sensitive areas as defense and economy, And after crisis with the violent change of power structure and economy, you have so-called the period of normalization. It may last indefinitely. Normalization is a cynical expression borrowed from Soviet propaganda. When the Soviet tanks moved into Czechoslovakia in 1968, Comrade Bresnev said, Now the situation in brotherly Czechoslovakia is normalized. This is what will happen in the United States if you allow all the schmucks to bring the country to crisis, to promise people all kind of goodies in the paradise on earth, to destabilize your economy, to eliminate the principle of free market competition, and to put big brother government in Washington, D.C. with benevolent dictators like Walter Mondale who will promise lots of things, never mind whether the promises are fulfilled or not. Never mind. He will create false illusions that the situation is under control. The situation is not under control. The situation is disgustingly out of control. Now before we further deviate from the main subject of attention, we should narrow our focus and finally introduce The Conspirator's Hierarchy, the Committee of 300. Researched and written by Dr. John Coleman throughout the 1970s and 1980s, subsequently published in 1991. In the foreword of the book, he describes what initially motivated him to take on the seemingly impossible task of exposing the individuals ultimately responsible for covertly constructing a parallel secret government operated from behind the shadows in a closed private room filled with unelected bureaucrats. If you have ever wondered who the proverbial they might be, which all of us have undoubtedly heard or even referenced ourselves when discussing the idiomatic powers that be, this book provides answers, along with some of the most extraordinary claims I have ever come across throughout the course of my research. In the foreword, he writes, In my career as a professional intelligence officer, I had many occasions to access highly classified documents, but during service as a political science officer in the field in Angola, West Africa, I had the opportunity to view a series of top-secret classified documents, which were unusually explicit. What I saw filled me with anger and resentment and launched me on a course from which I have not deviated. Namely, to uncover what power it is that controls and manages the British and United States governments, I was thoroughly familiar with all of the well-known secret societies such as the Royal Institute for International Affairs, the Council on Foreign Relations, the Bilderbergers, Trilaterals, the Zionists, Freemasonry, Bolshevism, Rosicrucianism, and all the spin-offs of these secret societies as an intelligence officer. And even before that, as a young student in the course of my studies, at the British Museum in London, I had cut my eye teeth on all of them, plus a good number of others, with whom I imagined Americans were familiar. But when I came to the United States in 1969, I found that names like the Order of St John of Jerusalem, Club of Rome, the German Marshall Fund, the Cini Foundation, the Round Table, the Fabianists the Venetian Black Nobility, the Mont Pelerin Society, Hellfire Clubs, and many others were at best totally unknown here, or else their true functions were at best but poorly understood, if at all. In nineteen sixty nine to nineteen seventy, I set about remedying the situation in a series of monographs and cassette tapes. Much to my surprise I soon found plenty of people willing to quote these names as if they had known of them all of their writing careers, but who were not in the least bit knowledgeable about the subjects, yet quite unwilling to state the source of their lately acquired information. I consoled myself with the thought that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. I pursued my investigations, pressing on in the face of severe risks, attacks on myself and my wife, financial losses, continual harassment, threats and calumny, all part of a carefully crafted and orchestrated program to discredit me, run by government agents and informers embedded in the so-called Christian right-wing, the identity movement, and right-wing patriotic groups. These agents operated, and still operate, under cover of strong and fearless outspoken opposition to Judaism, their main enemy they would have us believe. Their program of calumny, lies, and hatred disinformation about my work, even lately attributing it to other writers, continues unabated, but it has not had the desired effect. I shall carry on with my task until I have finally ripped off the mask of the entire secret upper-level parallel government that runs the United Kingdom and the U.S. This book is a part of that ongoing effort. Dr. John Coleman, November 1991. The groups and individuals outlined and named throughout this book uncover secret allegiances through drawing connections between officials of think tanks and non-governmental policy-steering organizations, piecing together the nebulous formation of what he likes to call the secret upper-level parallel government, deliberately carrying out special interests on behalf of a group he identifies as the Committee of 300. In the early pages of the book, he claims that The Committee of 300 long ago decreed that there shall be a smaller, much smaller, and better world, that is, their idea of what constitutes a better world. The myriads of useless eaters consuming scarce natural resources were to be culled. Industrial progress supports population growth. Therefore, the command to multiply and subdue the earth found in Genesis Had to be subverted. This called for an attack upon Christianity, the slow but sure disintegration of industrial nation states, the destruction of hundreds of millions of people, referred to by the Committee of 300 as surplus population, and the removal of any leader who dared to stand in the way of the Committee's global planning to reach the foregoing objectives. Two of the Committee's earliest targets were Italy and Pakistan. The late Aldo Moro, Prime Minister of Italy, was one leader who opposed zero growth and population reductions planned for his country, thereby incurring the wrath of the Club of Rome commissioned by the self-proclaimed Olympians to carry out its policies in this regard. In a Rome courtroom on November 10, 1982, a close friend of Moro's testified that the former Prime Minister was threatened by an agent of the Royal Institute for International Affairs, who was also a committee of 300 member while he was still the US secretary of state the meteoric rise of the man the witness named as henry kissinger will be dealt with later it will be recalled that prime minister moro was kidnapped by the red brigades in 1978 and subsequently brutally shot to death it was at the trial of members of the red brigades that several of them testified to the fact that they knew of high level U.S. involvement in the plot to kill Moro. When threatening Moro, Kissinger was obviously not carrying out U.S. foreign policy, but rather acting according to instructions received from the Club of Rome, the foreign policy arm of the Committee of 300. While giving a speech in 1994, Dr. Coleman explained the role of the British East India Trading Company in the formation of the Committee of 300. Claiming that King George III of the Venetian Party of the North sent Adam Smith, the servant of the British East India Company, to formulate a policy which he called free trade. And by the means of free trade, Adam Smith, a greatly beloved economist of the Marxists, the Socialists, and the Liberals, hoped to bring the small manufactories and the industries established by the colonists to their knees. Let me tell you unequivocally. The free trade is piracy. There is no such thing as free trade. We have to reject this constant brainwashing to which we are subjected. Free trade began with Adam Smith and the British East India Company. Now who is the British East India Company? They played a massive role in the history of the United States of America. Only you are not taught this in your schools or in your universities. But you need to know. The British East India Company was the most powerful trading company in the world. They made their massive monies out of the dope trade. They first grew primed poppies in Kew Gardens in Kensington, London, and got the best-producing opium poppies. They then shipped them to Denari's in India, where they began a massive plantation of opium-producing poppies. They then used their famous tea clippers to transport the poppies in the form of raw opium to China and by their military force, they imposed an opium policy on China that turned the Chinese nation into a nation of addicts. And they enforced this policy, which was known to the royal family and Lord Gladstone, the prime minister, and every one of the lords and ladies in England, and they made a massive, huge fortune. He continues to claim that in researching these documents in India House in London, he came across some of the manifests of the old tea clippers and the numbers of kegs of opium they carried and their values. He totaled up these things, and he found to his astonishment that if he took 1970 as an optimum year for profits in General Motors and Ford, in one year, the opium trade with China was three times the profits of the combined profits of Ford and General Motors in 1970 and this was shared by 300 people. That was the committee that ran the British East India Company. They all had equal voting rights and could not outvote each other, and of course they were sworn to secrecy. The descendants of the British East India Company today run the United States and also interfered with the development of the United States on every occasion. They ran the Hudson's Bay Company as well as the so-called mission stations in China and financed agents posing as missionaries to push opium on the Chinese. There was a conversation between the Prime Minister of Egypt, Abdel Nasser, and Premier of China, Chao Enlai. And Chao Enlai told him, You know, the Americans and the British made China a nation of opium addicts. And now, with the Vietnam War, it's our turn. We are going to make the Americans a nation of opium addicts. Dr. Coleman continues describing the role of the British East India Company in the formation of America, providing details as to how they financed the Revolutionary War through providing the capital for the British troops to hire the Hessian mercenaries and to fight the colonists, or the brave three percent. Only three percent of the people took arms and stood up against the mighty army of King George Third and the Hessian mercenaries who were actually Germans serving as auxiliaries to the British Army during the American Revolutionary War. The concept of free trade seems to often be mischaracterized by the majority of popular ideologies ranging across the political spectrum. Dr. Coleman found it important to include his interpretation of free trade, stating that, On July 4, 1789, George Washington told the Congress, It is necessary for us to impose tariffs to protect the manufactories of our colonies. That was the first trade barrier. Now let us dispose for once and for all with the words that have been implanted on our minds like isolationist. And you are for restricted trade. And you are against global trade. The United States of America did not grow great on global trade. The United States of America grew great on the hard labor of the people who lived in those days and the wise protection barriers strategically placed. Free trade is a one-way street which allows other countries to dump their products on our markets to the detriment of our own people. It is strictly a one-way street. The trade barriers were increased by Lincoln, Garfield, and McKinley and all three presidents paid with their lives for that policy. Now who and what is the Committee of 300? A supranational body that knows no boundaries, respects the laws of no countries. The first time that they were publicly announced was by a German socialist by the name of Walter Rathenau. He was the financial advisor to the Kaiser of Germany, and he was also the financial advisor to the Rothschild family. He made an astonishing statement in 1934. He said, There is a committee of 300 men that rule the world. They are known only to each other, and nothing happens without their consent. In the book, Dr. Coleman describes in details the stated goals of the committee, beginning by explaining, in order to get an idea of how vast and how all pervasive is this conspiracy, it would be appropriate at this point to name the goals set by the Committee of 300 for the pending conquest and control of the world. There are at least 40 known branch offices of the Committee of 300, and we shall be listing them all together with a description of their functions. Once this is studied, it becomes easy to understand how one central conspiratorial body is able to operate so successfully and why it is that no power on earth can withstand their onslaught against the very foundations of a civilized, progressive world based on freedom of the individual, especially as it is declared in the United States Constitution. The federal government, the secret upper-level parallel government that runs the United States, does not want you to know that you have an upper-level parallel government that calls the shots that dictates what is going to happen to your life and mine. The next question is, what are their goals? Their goals are a one-world government called the New World Order. Dr. Coleman claims that the one-world government began with King George III, and at the time that the colonists were brave enough to take him on, King George was already busy formulating a one-world government and he had lined up at least 50 different countries that were willing to come into this future world dictatorship with him. The goals, then very simply stated, are to make the world over into a one-world, new world-order dictatorship controlled utterly and completely by this committee of 300. How can they possibly carry out their goals? is the next question often asked. They do it by virtue of their fantastic wealth and the fact that they control thousands of the top banking institutions, political organizations, insurance companies, mining conglomerates, every conceivable control in politics, including the Democrat Party of the United States. Which is, of course, since 1980, behind closed doors at a secret caucus in Washington, D.C., the Democrat hierarchy took on the goals of the old Socialist Party USA i.e., based upon the Communist Manifesto of 1848. In the book, he lists every one of their gigantic corporations and how they interface, claiming that they carry out their goals through existing organizations, and also, of course, they have built up some special organizations of their own. In the 1994 speech, he says, When I first started writing in America when I came here in 1969, I revealed the existence of an organization called the Royal Institute for International Affairs, which is located at Chatham House in St. James Square in London. I also revealed the existence of the Club of Rome, the Sini Foundation, Mont Society, the Order of St. John, which was known but not known, and I listed all of these secret societies that run the world as executive arms of the Committee of 300 so it controls the world through all of these organizations. The Royal Institute for International Affairs is the executive arm of this committee which gives instructions to the United States government to this very day. The chain of command is as follows. Every Secretary of State that has been appointed since 1919 is appointed by the Royal Institute for International Affairs. Every one of the Secretaries of State Was chosen in London, as was the President Woodrow Wilson, as was Roosevelt, as was James Earl Carter. He was specially chosen because he had three mental breakdowns and they felt he would be a good candidate for manipulation. James Earl Carter was not a known entity in the American scene. I first heard of him through my intelligence contacts, particularly my French sources, who are one of the best in the world after MI6. And he told me, Your next president is going to be a peanut farmer from Georgia. And I said, How? And he said, Right now they're meeting at the Dorchester Hotel in London, and if you get over there, you will find that there's a lot of goings-on that you might like to look at. And lo and behold, that's what was happening. The Royal Institute of International Affairs had ordered David Rockefeller to find a candidate who was totally weak preferably mentally weak, and they put one of the greatest brainwashing specialists in the world, trained by the Tavistock Institute for Human Relations, Dr. Peter Bourne, on the job. And he said, it's funny you should say that. One of my patients is a guy from Georgia, James Earl Carter, and this guy can't take rejection. He's been to me three times for a nervous breakdown. So they hiked Carter over to London and faded him at the Dorchester Hotel, which is a very ritzy place. And they faded him, and wined and dined him, and the next thing we saw, Time, Newsweek, every newspaper in the country. James Earl Carter. Now, in our little magazine, World in Review, we told those of our subscribers, this man is your next president. We also did exactly the same thing, with William Jefferson Clinton. Because we had the story of the Club of Rome, we knew who Agnelli was. We knew that Agnelli had had a huge love affair with Mrs. Pamela Harriman, and that Mrs. Pamela Harriman was the doyen of the Democrat Party, and Mrs. Harriman had been given the task of finding the next president of the United States, a socialist. And she picked up Rhodes Scholar Bill Clinton and said, you're our boy. So, the Royal Institute of International Affairs does control everything that happens in the United States. They give their orders to the Morgan Guarantee and Trust Bank on Wall Street, and the chief executive officer of that organization is Dennis Weatherstone, and he duly relays the orders over to the Secretary of State, whoever that happens to be, who then relays the orders to the President. Hearing my effort to corroborate some of these extraordinary claims, I tracked down many of the aforementioned names and groups only to find significant overlap with his version of events. In fact, most of what I was able to find only seemed to fortify his claims. The Club of Rome, for example, was founded in 1968 in Rome, Italy and is publicly acknowledged as a non organization of intellectuals and business leaders whose goal is a critical discussion of pressing global issues. The original two co-founders were Aurelio Peque, Italian industrialist and philanthropist, and Dr. Alexander King, a British chemist and advisor to the British government, also listed as the Director General for Scientific Affairs at an intergovernmental organization with 38 different member countries called the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. He was labeled a pioneer of the sustainable development movement, and the very first paper, serving as the background for this formational meeting in Rome, set the tone for the group, with the title, A Tentative Framework for Initiating System-Wide Planning of World Scope. By 1972, the group would stimulate considerable public attention after they commissioned a project to a team at MIT, resulting in a report that was presented at international gatherings in Moscow, and Rio de Janeiro in the summer of 1971, called the Limits to Growth. According to a critique of the Limits to Growth presented by an interdisciplinary team at Sussex University's Science Policy Research Unit, after reviewing the structure and assumptions of the models used, they published their findings in a critique with the title, Models of Doom, claiming that the forecasts of the world's future are very sensitive to a few unduly pessimistic key assumptions. The Sussex scientists also claimed that the methods, data, and predictions were all faulty, citing their world models and Malthusian bias as an inaccurate reflection of reality. By 2016, the Club of Rome would garner their most serious criticism after publishing a pamphlet titled, Reinventing Prosperity wherein they promoted the idea of a one-child policy for industrialized countries, leading to articles being published in various state-owned media organizations with titles like, Having Fewer Children, A Solution for Climate Change? The Tavistock Institute of Human Relations, according to the official narrative, was initially created in 1947, after the Rockefeller Foundation awarded a significant grant that facilitated the creation of the Institute. However, an alternative perspective found at the Millennium Report claims that this group was formed at Oxford University, London, by the Royal Institute of International Affairs in 1922. Major John Rawlings Rees, a British Army technician was instructed to set up the largest brainwashing facility in the world at the Tavistock Institute for Human Relations as a part of Sussex University. This became the core of Britain's Psychological Warfare Bureau. It was Tavistock-designed methods that got the United States into the Second World War and which, under the guidance of Dr. Kurt Lewin, established the OSS, the forerunner of the CIA. Lewin became the director of the Strategic Bombing Survey, which was a plan for the Royal Air Force to concentrate on bombing German worker housing while leaving military targets such as munition plants alone. The munition plants on both sides belonged to the international bankers who had no wish to see their assets destroyed. The idea behind saturation bombing of civilian worker housing was to break the morale of the German worker. Tavistock is reported to run over 30 different research institutions throughout the United States and played a prominent role in the formation of NATO, which was financed by the German Marshall Fund for at least five years. Tavistock is also suspected to be the culture creation arm for the Committee of 300, operating through many different think tanks and research institutes, such as the RAND Corporation, the Brookings Institute, the Institute for Policy Studies, and the Stanford Research Institute, as well as being tasked with infiltrating the National Teachers Association in an effort to take full control of the system of education. Holman wrote about this in the book, claiming that one of Tavistock's chief wreckers of our way of life was Dr. Alexander King, a founding member of NATO, a favorite of the committee, and a leading member of the Club of Rome. King was assigned by the Club of Rome to lower the standard of American education by taking control of the National Teachers Association and working in close conjunction with certain members of the U.S. Congress. By 1993, the National Teachers Association had become a formidable socialist tool in the struggle for possession of the minds of our children. Outcome-based education was the method whereby the wholesale socializing of American school children was being carried out. Another aspect of OBE is its heavy attention to sex education and pumping lesbianism and homosexuality into the minds of grade school and secondary school children. We must digress, if only for a moment, to briefly mention the 1969 Jaffe Memo, which falls perfectly in place with this brand of what amounts to a psychotic implementation of the pseudoscientific belief system of eugenics. The Jaffe Memo is an infamous document produced by Planned Parenthood in 1969, and in a single page, conveys the links that elitists are willing to go to manage the U.S. population. Most of the ideas listed in the memo seem to have one primary goal in mind. How can we reduce the population in the United States? I'll briefly list some of the suggestions found in the memo. Compulsory abortion of -of out-of-wedlock pregnancies. Compulsory sterilization of all who have two children, except for a few who would be allowed three. Fertility control agents in the water supply. Encourage increased homosexuality. Compulsory education of children. Encourage women to work. Alter image of ideal family size. And postpone or avoid marriage. All of this is directly related to the socially engineered goals of the depopulation agenda pushed forward by the Club of Rome and its affiliate organizations. At a certain point, The prospect of a covert agenda for global control dubbed the New World Order clearly emerges as the only rationalization for such unethical behavior. Researcher and author Eustace Mullins was the protege of the 20th century intellectual, writer, and poet Ezra Pound, and after years of research in the Library of Congress, he emerged with a book titled The World Order Our Secret Rulers. During an interview in 1992, he describes an alternate version of American history that merges perfectly with Dr. John Coleman's claims about the compromised nature of our financial institutions.
1: Today we have with us Eustace Mullins, a lecturer, an author, author of many books, a scholar, Washington and Lee University. And today we're going to be talking about several different subjects. But this particular subject is the most important, for today's political venue. And Eustace has written a book called The World Order. Now, Mr. Mullins has been working since, for the last 50 years, to research important questions that need to be answered in relationship of middle America to the political evolution. Eustace, tell us a little bit, if you would, how you got started in
2: being an author? Well, I had always intended to be an author, but I had intended to write Uh, novels, perhaps some poems, and uh, I had absolutely no interest in any research or any nonfiction work. I didn't consider that as creative writing. So I met a poet, uh, a very bohemian person named Ezra Pound, who was then incarcerated without trial on a more or less lifetime basis, and um, he asked me to look into the banking interest, the Federal Reserve System Uh, at the Library of Congress there in Washington, D.C. And I did this, and I found it to be quite an interesting story, which launched me on research which continues to the present day. Now, this book, The New World Order, how does the New World Order deal with the banking interest in America and across the world? Well, you see, in studying the banking uh, system in the United States, I found it was part of an international system of banking uh, called Central Banks in Europe, and that the federal reserve system which we had here was simply an american version of the central banks they had in europe and i also found that these banks did not exist as some entity in some world of their own they were an integral part of what i came to call the world order now eustace this new world order and this
1: banking system i was under the impression that the banks themselves were american banks and it was the federal government that owned the banks are you telling me that That our
2: government itself doesn't own these banks? Well, our government doesn't own anything. We really don't have a government. We're just a colony of England. Hmm. How can you say that? A colony of England?
1: Well, I know that they have the Republican Party and the Democrat Parties. and, And I go down to the local bank
2: and I can cash a dollar bill, can't I? Oh, well, you can go into any colony of, of Great Britain and cash a check. Uh, that doesn't mean you're in an independent nation. Would
1: you trace for me the colony of Great Britain to the United States and the banks if I, went to, if I put a Federal Reserve note in the bank today? How can I say that that, or how can you tell me that's a
2: part of a colony of Great Britain? Well, you see, we started out as a colony of Great Britain, and then presumably we won political independence uh, in the uh, American Revolution. But you see, uh, the American Revolution was not against the bank. The American red, uh, Revolution was against King George III. So we won against King George III, but we didn't win against uh, the Bank of England, of which King George III was a major stockholder. So King George lost this wonderful colony over here, but he retained the banking control and continued to uh, get his interest and his profits from uh his American colony just as before. Okay let's go from King
1: George to the Federal Reserve. What happened in between because there was some time in there and some people say that Andrew Jackson was one of the best presidents this country ever had. Could you tell us about him and what did he do in regard to banking?
2: Well you see immediately after the revolution when we had our wonderful independence and we could have the 4th of July and shoot off firecrackers and still pay interest to the Bank of England which no one seemed to mind because they didn't know about it and so uh, Uh, Andrew Hamilton established, or re-established, the Bank of England presence in the United States of America immediately after the revolution, called the First Bank of the United States, which Jefferson strongly opposed. And when Jefferson became president, he refused to renew the charter of this foreign central bank, the First Bank of the United States, so it went out of existence. And in revenge for that, England declared war on us and we had the War of 1812 which was simply a banking war. Of course, you won't uh, read that in any history book in England or in the United States. They tell you that American seamen were being impressed uh, by the British Navy. They would stop American ships and impress American seamen. And this was the occasion of the war. Well, that had nothing to do with it. It was simply the Bank of England said, we're going to punish the United States for refusing to renew the charter of the First Bank of the United States. So anyway, The first bank of the United States disappeared, and then uh, Nicholas Biddle, an agent of James Rothschild of Paris, uh, chartered a second bank of the United States. And it was doing quite well until Andrew Jackson came along, and he said to the bankers, you are a nest of vipers, and by God, I will rout you out. And so he did. He removed all of the government deposits from the second bank of the United States in 1836 which caused it to collapse, and in revenge the Bank of England suspended uh, all American paper which caused the first great uh, depression in the United States called the Panic of 1837. That was strictly a banker's panic and of course then the Rothschilds came in and bought up uh, American securities at one cent on the dollar and established a great many of the great American fortunes including J.P. Morgan. But Andrew Jackson
1: himself, would you would credit him with at least taking a stand against this banking monopoly that is destroying his America.
2: Well, he was a general and a patriot and an American, and uh, to him, the bankers were Satan incarnate. They were robbing and looting this country. They were oppressing the people. They were causing financial uh, depression and widespread suffering, and he said, I'm going to go after them, and he did. Unfortunately, the history books do not tell you why he did anything that he did, so Uh, The American children go to school and they have no idea what all this was about. Neither do the college students. Neither do do the graduate college students.
0: The level of detail found in these alternative theories seductively captured my attention. But the significant overlap of some of the most inhumane detrimental policies plaguing modern society struck a profound chord within me, completely dissolving my willingness to believe in sheer coincidence It is so clear to me that there is an elite power structure hidden in plain sight operating from the shadows as deceptive handlers conducting their magnum opus. It was through Tavistock and the overlap of the Fabian Society as well as the Frankfurt School where they designed the intersectionality principle in order to destroy individual identity with the goal of dividing people into subgroups Rendering them much more easy to manipulate. In spite of all of this, in the end, we are still left wondering Could this all just be a complicated delusion, providing yet another aberration in a desperate attempt to make sense of the state of the world around us? Or have we been conditioned for generations? by a strategically targeted, socially engineered psychological warfare program, leaving us in such a vulnerable state, mentally and physically, that we could never put up the fight necessary to take back control of our own destiny.